welcome everybody to our next session. We're going to talk about uh, non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Uh, I'm joined by um, Petros, Sia, and Sam. Um, Sam, do you want to start by introducing yourself first? We'll come in this direction here. Sure, great. Uh, hi, my name is Sam Chang. I am the only person on the panel from Nashville, so I took five minutes to get here. So it was a, it was a wonderful trip. I'm a, a urologic surgeon in Nashville, Tennessee. Hi, I'm Sia Donishman. I'm from Los Angeles. I'm a Director of Urologic Oncology at USC and Norris Comprehensive Cancer Center. Hello, everybody. I'm Petrus Grivas. I'm a medical oncologist in Seattle. I'm a professor and the clinical director of GU Cancer's program at Fred Hudson University of Washington. This is one of our live podcasts. We have got very few slides because it's a podcast. It makes total sense. Um, but we have got one or two slides just in case. And we're going to uh, start with um, a, uh, an opinion piece around you know, what we think um, what we think is going to be really exciting in the future. Uh, and I think the results of this poll, and there were 40 votes, was I think people are really excited about TAR 200, and we're going to talk a little bit about that as well. Um, there's um, issues on instiladrin and other bits and pieces that we're going to talk about as well, some of the manufacturing issues that we ran into, some of the problems there. And Petros is going to talk about the IV therapies, pembrolizumab, and, um, and, and also atezolizumab. Um, here's a, a slide, again, and for those people who are listening in. Um, I, don't th I think the, the bottom line is we're going to start by talking in three groups. And I might ask Sia to start first, because I think that TAR program is, is really exciting. So we're going to start with TAR 200 and TAR 210. And, and then from then, we're going to ask Sam to talk about IL-15 and um, instiladrin, and then at the end, Pem Pem uh, Petros is going to talk about the uh, the intravenous, uh, sorry, intravenous um, pembrolizumab. So, see, so yeah, why don't you kick off first and just talk in broad terms about how we've got to where we are with FGFR inhibition and gemcitabine chemotherapy given via this new device. Sure. Uh, let me start by talking about TAR 200 first, because that was the first device that was. Uh, 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 investigated. So this is a uh, what we call a, a pretzel device because it has the shape of a pretzel and it's uh, basically a, a completely novel drug delivery mechanism, right? We, we're so used to delivering uh, uh, medications inside the bladder via solution, via catheter, and the patients are used to this as well. But this is a novel delivery mechanism where uh, catheter is placed in the bladder and, and uh, this uh, pretzel device is placed through the catheter inside the bladder. Uh, we push it in, it, it uh, maintains a, a pretzel shape in, in the bladder and it's sort of floating around delivering this medicine, uh, which in this case would be gemcitabine. Old drug, but new delivery mechanism and, and the sustained release that's now lasting for three uh, weeks rather than one hour. So, uh, you know, we're seeing uh, far better results than monotherapy with gemcitabine in, the, in this uh, BCG unresponsive uh, population. Uh, this thing is very well tolerated. So again, th these are gemcitabine tablets within the pretzel device. The, the urine and, and the, uh, its, uh, its uh, components will dissolve or uh, elude, uh, make this drug elude into the uh, uh, bladder over a three-week period. Uh, very well tolerated uh, because this thing is actually floating around, not sitting in one place, irritating the bladder. Gemcitabine in, in those low doses, sustained release is actually very well uh, uh, tolerated by the, by the bladder urothelium. Um, but most importantly, you know, we're looking at efficacy, right? So the, uh, the initial results were presented at the AUA uh, by myself uh, uh, with 23 patients. And at ESMO just recently, uh, Andrea Necki presented the uh, uh, 
updated results with 30 patients, and we're seeing 77% complete response rates uh, so far at any time point. Uh, and if, if by investigated uh, uh, assessment, it was 80% complete response rates. Now, you have to look at duration of response, and it hasn't quite uh, uh, matured yet, but we do have a, a, a fair number of patients, at least six who are uh, over one year and have uh, sustained complete responses. So very exciting results, I think, for uh, this gem gemcitabine uh, tablet, the TAR-200 TAR uh, pretzel device. Uh, and we're gonna have uh, you know, other results in other states of disease, or four sunrise trials, one through, th two, one through four, uh, soon to be five, uh, in, in other uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, bladder cancer stages and, and uh, in development. So that led to uh, TAR210, which is ertafitinib in this pretzel device. Now that sort of follows the oral ertafitinib uh, trials in, in both high-risk non-muscle invasive bladder cancer, uh, uh, BCG unresponsive, as well as in low-grade intermediate risk, where we're, we're seeing uh, much higher FGFR3 positivity rates in the tissue of up to 60, 70%. So this was oral ERTA um, given to the patients uh, in the low-risk patients. Actually, we had a marker lesion, and we could actually watch these things disappear uh, with, with you know, follow-up cystoscopy. So we knew there was activity there. The next step was, of course, to put this inside the bladder, and that's what the TAR-210 is. Uh, it's exactly the same de same device, pretzel. We've got ertafitinib in there. Now, this is a three-month formulation. This is fantastic. We're putting it in the bladder uh, once and taking it out at three months. Again, very well tolerated. The preliminary results are really outstanding uh, so far. Again, uh, we're seeing good tolerability uh, with, the, with the device, and, and so far the results have been very few patients, uh, eight to 10 patients so far pre presented, but, but very good results. Do you think the results are transformative? Do you think, um, you talked about the Sunrise program, there are randomized trials there. Do you expect in three or five years' time that, 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 this, that BCG will be replaced because there are, there are trials looking at different settings? It might be longer than five years, but is yeah. this potentially completely different? Absolutely. I think uh, this is here to stay. This, this is uh, very exciting results. Uh, you know, even you look at the preliminary results, it, 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 it is uh, far higher than anything we've seen in the BCG unresponsive space. Now, you're talking about, you know, will it replace BCG? I think BCG will always have a place. Uh, we're uh, looking at some combination therapies with uh, BCG that may augment. The problem, not the problem, but the issue is uh, BCG is such a high uh, uh, response rate to begin with and to augment it uh, to uh, higher from 80 to 85% or 90%, you know, is it worth the toxicity of the additional therapy, uh, be, it, be it checkpoint, be it any other uh, device. But there is a trial going head-to-head -head with, with this device versus BCG, that's the Sunrise th uh, 3 program. So th the short answer would be yes, I think absolutely is transformative. I think we're going to see other drugs placed in devices such as this and, and, and uh, sustained release. Um, and certainly this will be part of the armamentarium of our management of non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. Do you think the FGFR inhibitor is more active than gemcitabine? And do you think you could put drugs like antibody drug conjugates in there as well into this device? Yeah, great question. We, uh, there's currently a phase one for uh, EV in, in intravesically, um, but that's not in, in uh, sort of sustained release format. So we'll, we'll see what the results of that show, but there's no question there's going to be interest in uh, putting it in a sustained release rather than just one hour. There's only so much you can tolerate in the bladder for, you know, for any solution to be placed there. Uh, so absolutely, as you think about you know, what works in the bladder, 
then putting it in a sustained release format, uh, I think, is going to improve the, the results. So absolutely, there's going to be uh, interest in, in antibody drug conjugates in the future, yeah. There are four Sunrise trials, yeah. five. There are, some of them are randomized. Which is the one do you think that's most likely to change practice? And which one do you think is going to read out first? Well, Sunrise 1, I think, is, is ahead of all. Uh, it's been presented twice now at ESMO and at AUA, and, and uh, that's for the non-Muslim invasive. Uh, there were three cohorts, two of which were already closed. One of them was uh, cohort one was uh, uh, BCG plus citrilamab. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, uh, the uh, TAR 200 plus citrilamab, which is a PD1 inhibitor. Uh, cohort two was uh, uh, TAR 200 alone, and cohort three was citrilamab alone in BCG unresponsive uh, patients. Uh, citrilamab sort of read out a uh, little bit with a few patients that were on there. 38% response rate, much very similar to the uh, Pembro data that, that we've known. So. Um, that cohort sort of closed once we saw the initial results with TAR 200 alone, which is 77% uh, complete response rate. Uh, the additive, we didn't have data for the TAR 200 plus uh, citrilamab arms, but whatever it is, um, uh, that incremental benefit may not be worth the to additional toxicities of a systemic agent, right? We're, we're getting enough uh, sort of uh, bang for the buck for, with a monotherapy inside the bladder for now. But we'll see uh, the combination arms. So that's probably the most exciting, the one that we'll uh, read out uh, first. Uh, and of course, like you said, the randomized uh, trial for muscle invasive bladder cancer where it's uh, uh, citrilamab plus TAR200 versus chemo radiation as the, the standard uh, of care for patients who are either sus uh, cystectomy ineligible or refusing cystectomy. Could this be an approach to bladder sparing um, treatment? Yeah, certainly. Uh, we have seen uh, complete responses in patients uh, getting TAR-200 alone in uh, uh, Mark Tyson uh, uh, from uh, uh, Arizona presented or actually published the data on TAR-200 in patients who are absolutely unfit for cystectomy. These are patients their median age, I think, was 84, and uh, seeing some complete responses. That's pretty remarkable for a single-agent intravesical treatment to see some CRs in a very elderly patient population who, who are not able to tolerate much at all. Again, this is very well tolerated. Uh, these are the same patients who are doing cystoscopies uh, and, and you know, trying to maintain their bladder, uh, maintain their quality of life uh, at, at the end of life. And I think, Tom, sorry, I think that study uh, in, if you would consider them the worst case scenario, unhealthy patients with clearly invasive disease that actually had CRs, single agent, placed in the bladder, systemic toxicity is really actually minimal. Uh, that's actually what really led to all these trials and looking at, just as we always do, look at an earlier stage of that disease process. And so I, I, I think things will be quite exciting as, as, they, as they unveil. Sam, do you, we, we chatted, we had a, did a podcast together, and you very elegantly described... Probably one of the highlights of my career. I'll have to say that right now. Really one of the most CV. memorable, for sure. You very elegantly highlighted... First, first on my CVs right there. <laughs> you very elegantly highlighted some of the issues we have around the definitions that we put in place. Um, and there were two things that really struck me. Uh, the first is you seem to have to have a certain amount of BCG to get over a bar to say you have refractory disease. And how do we get to that place? And what are those definitions? Um, and then the second question is around biopsies. and what Because you can see some of the data here, they're biopsies, some there aren't. And what does that all mean? Yeah, I mean, I think those are good points. One of the things that when, when we look at patients who receive BCG, which is still the most common treatment in the U.S., despite the issues with shortages, is the fact that 
um, the, the, the practicing physicians, we've tended to be using it almost in a non-risk stratified manner. If someone has disease in the bladder that's not invasive, we tended to give BCG. Um, and, and then we realized that the vast majority of patients respond, but some don't. And those that didn't, we tried to kind of lump them into groups. So these definitions of who's BCG refractory or unresponsive or, or intolerant, those are actually, as, as we discussed, are, are definitions that clinicians make to try to actually stratify patients into similar groups. Um, and, and that's important as we try to uh, elicit study results that actually get that compare apples to apples and oranges to oranges. So now we have this BCG unresponsive definition, which is basically an exposure of at least induction BCG, five out of six cycles, plus either two out of three or another induction round. And now we have a lot of trials that have actually BCG exposed or those that have received any BCG and are thus enrolled in trials. And so I, I think we're getting to the point where we're trying to determine Number one, is BCG the right treatment? And then number two, if patients do not respond to BCG, or rather their disease does not respond to BCG, let's decide that earlier as opposed to later and then be able to change treatments. And so, so you had mentioned kind of this combination therapy. So one of the medications or one of the studies that, that, uh, that's been elicited on, on the slide here that Tom put together uh, is a combination of BCG plus a medication called N803 which uh, the trade name is Anctiva. That medication actually piggybacks on BCG. It's actually a combination of BCG plus uh, an IL-15 super agonist. So uh, we, we just had news actually come out um, this week, or, or yeah, I guess it, it, is, it was this week, basically that the FDA have um, basically given a new PDUFA date of uh, the end of April of 2024. Uh, for the resubmission of their, um, uh, of their biologic license application. And so this combination therapy had been presented, it's a phase two slash three data, showing responses not too dissimilar um, uh, from other intravesical agents. The differences being that the results were actually, in fact, better, were longer, and seemed to be well tolerated. And so it's the combination, though, that requires that response. Um, it, it is a treatment given once a week for six weeks, and then at every three months, there's a maintenance dosage. And so what it basically is, is IL-15, a, a, a kind of a, a version that's been put together that increases uh, actually binding to the IL-2 receptor and decreases in, in terms of the side effects associated with any of those types of immunotherapy. So it's well tolerated, uh, response rates are good, and if you look at the long-term response rates of not only CIS but for papillary disease, there are individuals, just as we discussed in the earlier sessions regarding, we're not going to say cure, but there's definitely a percentage of patients that respond, and when they do respond, can respond for significant period of time. We're talking about years. Uh, and actually, if you look at the papillary group, the most recent data, the median duration of response for those that responded has not been reached. So we're talking greater than two to three years plus, which is longer than anything that we've recently had intravesical. It's not FDA approved. And so as urologic surgeons, we're always looking for things to put in the bladder to try to decrease systemic side effects. So, so you talked about uh, actually the pretzel, which is a, a device that's very, very promising and exciting. 
but we have to also mention that there is now an FDA-approved agent that is placed in the bladder, uh, and that is natafaragine. Its trade name was Instilodrin, is now Adstilodrin, and that was FDA-approved in December of 2022, so less than a year ago, but it's not been really commercially available till just in the past couple months. And this is a different form of immunotherapy, which is a, a, a humanized version of and an amped up version of actually interferon alpha 2b. Uh, it's actually a, a version piggyback to an adenovirus that's replication deficient, so it, it doesn't grow in your body, but it's actually placed into the bladder. There's also a component of it that actually increases binding to the urethelial cell. So advantage of this intravesical is given actually once a quarter. So as opposed to multiple treatments that other intravesical treatments get, in a year you get four treatments. Uh, importantly, side effect profile is actually quite good, and if you look at complete response rates, uh, at three months the complete response rate is more than 50%. That trickles down over time, but at one year the complete response rate is about 24%. Well tolerated, FDA approved, and now we need to have actually distribution of the medication, and that's just starting. Uh, it is an expensive medication, uh, and how it's going to be rolled out in the U.S. is a story that we don't know yet. So, I, so <coughs> sorry, I was just going to say it's, it's higher in uh, papillary disease, right? So CIS is about twenty-four percent, but it's actually in the forty percent range for at one year. At one year, and I think that's a theme that's important. If you look at CIS versus papillary, if you look for every trial. The CIS folks don't do quite as well in yeah. terms of response rates compared to papillary. That's true with if you look at the Sunrise data, but if you also look at the data looking at the N803, you actually have rates at two years of almost 50% disease-free rates with papillary disease. And so overall as a group, we again lump it together as non-muscle-based disease, but CNOs quite well. Uh, as do many of the urologic surgeons, there are different types of, of non-muscle invasive disease. Some clearly are more dangerous than others. These agents, we really try to obviously prevent recurrence, but we hopefully will prevent progression as well. So th these two treatments appear to me to be a bit of a flash in the pan. Why? We heard from SEER about Sunrise 1, 2, 3, and 4. Yeah. We heard from SEER's preliminary data, you know, that the, but the program is flying and is and is moving, growing. we don't hear growing, about growing. ongoing big randomized <laughs> trials with IL-15 or Instiladrin. So yeah, what's the story there? Excellent question. Thought-provoking as always, Tom, which is good. When you, when you look at, first of all, still uh, waiting for FDA approval. Uh, data still being accumulated long-term, those types of things. Other trials are being developed, uh, looking at, but you, I think, raise a, a question, which is one we don't know the answer to, is are we going to have to have actually true, in the urology world, a true phase three studies where we actually do comparative trials? And right now, I don't think the, the answer's still not clear. What's going to be the true comparator? And will it, will, it be the, will it be chemotherapy, which has been kind of a question? Will it be BCG? Will it be a combination? Will it be um, actually... Uh, a combination of adstilodrin, since that's FDA approved and, and, and better in the BCGN responses, so that's not clear. Why is there not uh, other large studies? I think a combination of these are smaller companies, limited resources, 
um, still waiting for that best patient population to help answer a question that will allow the FDA approval. And so just for, for my benefit, you, you've got some issues around manufacture. Yeah. And what are those issues? Because I read in the I read that the delays and the yeah. FDA saying no and so what? Are, so again, it's a bit of a flash in the pan. No prospective studies and manufacturing yeah, issues. Yeah, and, and actually, both the agents that, that I talked about, um, both of them, it didn't appear to be, and I, I I'm not on the inside track of this. Neither appear to be concerns about the efficacy. It's the concerns about the manufacturing specifics about that time. I don't know yeah. what the quality measures were. But that seemed to be the concern of, of can you make enough drug and make it available uh, in, in the quality that was made available for those study sites. And has Philodrins achieved that? IL-15's not yet achieved that, is Correct. That right? And if you had to choose between those two therapies, right now they're both approved and you've got a patient in front of you, and they were both approved. We're going to come to, we're going to, come to Tartu in a second. You've got both these treatments. Which horse are you backing at the moment of those two? BCG naive or BCG treated? Both. So in other words, both. if... If the both yeah. BCG naive, I'm going to do the combination of BCG plus. And now you would adopt that as your standard of care, if it works. Well, you don't. What, what in do you that BCG what? unresponsive group, I mean, in that BCG naive group. So you, I just set up a scenario, in in where it's not going to be FDA approved for BCG naive at this sure. point. But you said, okay, if I had my choice and they were BCG naive, I am a, still a big believer in BCG. Yes. And I think the combination, pure conjecture, no data, the combination of BCG plus 8803 first line, just would make the most sense of being But very, that's very a trial effective. you have to do. Correct. Yeah, so let's go to BCG refractory, where we are with this data set, which of those two agents are you gonna use and which one are you gonna drop? Let's say you were the head of a company that just bought both and you haven't got the bandwidth to pursue both. Which one you continue, which one <laughs> do you drop? Excellent question, and then it's, it's like determining pros and cons of, of different treatments that have pros and cons. Better efficacy, it seems. You can put up the trials where we're not supposed to compare, but everybody does. The results seem better with N803, but four treatments versus 18 treatments, cost, Etc. then that leans you more towards the etstiladrin. So even though the efficacy is better with N803, maybe the convenience or, and that type of thing would lead you towards the um, etstiladrin arm. So which would I choose? Uh, I'm a patient. I probably want the one. Why are you putting me in this position? I, I'm actually, <laughs> what are you thinking about? I, I might not answer this question. Yeah, I have to go I'm with one. For both. Both. No, no, exactly. <laughs> I, I think uh, both, uh, I'll take the line of, I think both obviously you have their merits. You can't discriminate between the yeah. two right now. No question. Okay, I'll buy that. Okay. I'll buy that. So um, last question for you okay. folks, and we'll come to Pestros in a second. Um, we're now going to introduce this concept of durability and long-term outcomes. See, you're lacking that at the moment. Yeah. Is that fair? I th absolutely. L look at the follow-up data here. Everything, everything we do in non-muscle invasive bladder cancer is in that 24 to max 48 months. You know, look, most of the results are uh, usually uh, presented or published at the 18-month mark to see whether this drug works. Part of it is because th these are um, previously cystectomy eligible patients and yep. they should have gone to cystectomy and we're trying to and these were elderly patients we're trying to get them additional two years yep. of therapy but I think that concept is slowly changing I think we're saying okay if they have non-muscle invasive bladder cancer granted they don't if they don't have invasive disease no high-grade T1 we do have now options and we can treat these patients so long-term data absolutely we need uh, further data but these 
uh, are bladders that are intact, right? They're constantly developing tumors. So we, we have to see, you know, once we exhaust one treatment, fortunately, I think now we're getting into uh, the concept that's been very familiar to you guys of sequencing uh, drugs for these. And I think we're in the future, it's a question, the, the difficult question, I'm glad you just asked Sam and not me, is which one would you choose? I think in the future, it's gonna be um, a sequence. If you've done this, then you go to this, right? Are we just kicking the ball down the road? I don't know. So the key difference is, I was just, as you were saying that, is maybe there is prolonged response, as you all see, with systemic therapy, IO therapy, as opposed to chemotherapy, in that there might be uh, an added benefit of building that innate immunity with IO-type therapies that may be able to go dot, 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 as opposed to the exposure to cytotoxic chemicals. So at least theoretically, perhaps the different types of immunotherapy, the, the IL-15 superagonists or the interferon alpha-2b kind of, kind of Im immune response builders, perhaps they have the advantage of if you do respond, you might be more likely to respond without further exposure. I don't know. I've got two more questions for you. Number one is, is this better than intracycle chemotherapy? Here you've got gem dosi, data looks pretty good. You've shown me some preliminary data from, but it, you know, you took them. It, how do you know it's better than just putting a bit of chemotherapy into the bladder? See ya. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I don't think we know if it's better. And we use gem. I think C would say we use uh, gem cytomine and docetaxel oh, combination the in the bladder uh, all the time. It, it, it's well uh, tolerated. It's somewhat cumbersome to give, but it is tolerated. Is it better? We don't know. And there's studies. Uh, Max Cage is helping. Why have we not used that in randomized trials? It's, it's being now done in randomized trials. Go ahead. No, I was gonna, so two, two comments. In, in randomized trials, there's been a lot of discussion about Gemdosi being the comparator arm. Part of the problem is Gemdosi, first of all, it's not FDA approved and hence difficult to get. In some, in, in Europe, it's, you can't do Gemdosi from what I understand. Uh, it's not approved, they, they will not. So the comparator arm in most of the trials, like Thor, Thor 2 has been Gem or Mitomycin because this combination is just not uh, available given. In the community in the and US- And you've beaten that clearly. Uh, yes, yes. With, yeah. So I mean, one of the justifications right. for my comeback would be actually we've done a randomized trial, and know it's been 40 patients, but we've knocked chemotherapy out of the water. Right. You've done exactly. that successfully. Yeah. Single agent. But, but single agent. Yeah, but not, but not, not combination. Yeah, no, okay. Yeah, but right? yeah. It okay. may be different. But, but, but yeah, Jim Dosey, clearly retrospective data, time and time again, has shown us pretty good results, durable responses uh, up to 50% of two years. Now the issue is also in the community, the answer is very different. We, they call us up, we recommend Gemdosi to them if they're not clinical trial candidate or they, want, they don't want to come to our center for treatment. It's very difficult for the urologists in the community to deliver Gem and Dosi. We don't know why, but those Dosi is generally given at a cancer center with pharmacy issues and all these practical issues. So we've had trouble. But here you have hugely expensive treatments yeah. and you're gonna go pursue that instead because it's a bit difficult to give it Intravasal chemotherapy. I mean, surely we can sort it out. Sort it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And maybe Hopefully, randomized yeah. trial is the way to sort it out. I think right. there is one in works in the cooperative group, right? And, so, the, and the control arm is a big question. What's absolutely. the control arm? So the bridge trial is uh, currently ongoing. Max Cates, uh, PI at, at Johns Hopkins. Uh, so that's 
B, going head to head, BCG versus Gemdosi. In BCG naive patients. In BCG naive patients, thank you. And, and, and so that's a very large trial. We'll see if this holds up to BCG as the primary treatment. And if that does, then that's going to change the landscape of how we think about mm -hmm. uh, the future trials and what you're going to include uh, as your first line treatment and what is really BCG refractory disease. This, this definition may change, right? Why are we using maintenance therapy as our you know, BCG refractory when, when the response rates are 30%? Perhaps we should just use BCG six weeks and then move on, right, if we're seeing better responses with second-line therapies. Petros, let's move across now to an FDA-approved therapy. Again, in, as all the treatments we've talked about today, it's this BCG refractory space, and we have pembrolizumab. It's been around for a while. Um, there are issues about durability of response. Um, it's not been taken up as much in the United States as perhaps some might have imagined. Do you want to just talk a bit about the data we've seen? There was also some atezolizumab, Peter Black's data. And those two, pembrolizumab and atezolizumab, what does the data show? And why is this not flown more successfully than one might have imagined? Tom, I have to start by saying I'm learning from my colleagues. Probably the longest I have stayed silent in my career. <laughs> it's been a miracle <laughs> since elementary school. It was noted. That's why they put you next to me. <laughs> it's actually good for me because I'm learning a lot from my friends and colleagues. So, uh, checkpoint inhibitors in non-muscle invasive disease, it's a long discussion. If we dissect the data, Kino 057, this trial was designed back in 2013 or 14, almost a decade ago. It was the beginning of checkpoint inhibition, the enthusiasm, and we wanted to cure patients, even in the early disease space. Two cohorts, cohort A is CIS containing, with or without papillary disease, cohort B is papillary disease only, without CIS. Now, 96 patients in the cohort A, and that trial did not mandate biopsies, which in hindsight, retrospectively, probably should have. However, there was a backdating of recurrence. For example, if you have an abnormal cytology, but no tissue recurrence, if you have a recurrence later, there was a backdate of the recurrence date at the time of the abnormal cytology. So just design differences, because on the Atizo trial, there was a mandatory biopsy at six months. Right. Now, cohort A, Kinos 57 trial, pembrolone monotherapy, there was a 41% clinical complete response rate at three months. You may argue it's an early time point. But over time, you have some attrition. So when you get to 12 months, about a year, it's about 20%, maybe 19% clinical complete response rate was exactly at the lower boundary of the FDA guidance. The FDA guidance says you want a clinical complete response rate, ideally 30%, but at least more than 20% in one year to make it to regulatory approval. And actually, it was exactly there. So there was a lot of discussion, but the FDA decided to approve this. Right. This was back in January 2020 yeah. in the absence of other agents. So it, it made it. Now, uh, this cohort A, uh, you may ask me why the uptake has been not high. I think it's a combination of the probably modest efficacy, you can argue, at least compared to all the other agents that we have seen in the absence of head-to-head -head comparison. But this clinical so this response rate. Plate. So you're saying SAM's data is better than the Pembroke data? We, we don't have head-to-head -head comparison. Sure, but you but kind of said that, no, and now you're backtracking yeah. a little bit. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I said that. It said that, in, of course, the caveat of absence of the comparison. Yeah. The Sam, do you think your base rate is better than the petrol data? Do you think the, you think the IL-15... There's better and there's better. I, I, I think that... Uh, <laughs> Diplomatic if, answer. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that uh, if, if, I, if I were a patient or if I were a urologic surgeon, I would prefer an intravesical therapy over systemic side effect, um, ease of giving, et cetera, historical kind of ex expertise and experience. And if you compare in terms of CR, short-term, long-term, it seems to be better with the intravesical therapies. So Petros, come back to, and, and, and please push back on Sam and, and, and put up for the intravesical 
PDPDAL1 inhibition story? It's hard to push back on Sam because he's a strong man, but I, I, th I think that the data uh, so far, again, it's, it's not an overwhelming transformative efficacy. Again, about 20% clinical response rate in one year. You have to put that in context with toxicity. And as you see, the, you know, there is a, a, approximately 15 to 20%, you can argue, across the board, grade three or high treatment-related adverse events, immune-related adverse events with systemic checkpoint inhibition. And the bar is higher in the muscle disease. So I think that combination explains why the uptake of PEMBRO intravenously Agreed. is not high in so the context of alternative therapies intravesically delivered by urologists. Sam, does the 10% chance of life-changing toxicity worry urologists? See ya. Does that? No, absolutely. Yeah. We're, yeah. yeah. No, we're not, we're not used to seeing this at all. You know, everything we do is in the bladder. We, we're very accustomed to... You're bladder-orientated. We're bladder-oriented. <laughs> you know, we go outside the bladder sometimes now. But, uh, you know, we're, we're used to these toxicities in the bladder and irritating, avoiding symptoms and things. We're, we're just not used to discussing systemic, you know, systemic toxicity with BCG is so rare. We always talk about BCGosis, but in reality, it's extremely rare to get systemic uh, side effects. But, yeah, it does worry us. 10% life-changing, like you said, uh, toxicities in a, in, a, in a disease state that has other potential options. So let me tell you what I see. I see your programs here with the opportunity for a transformative technology rather than a drug. And those drugs can, it makes sense. I can't see people walking, like putting squirting fluid into their bladder, <laughs> wandering around and peeing it out. I mean, why are we still doing that? That seems crazy to me. So I can see that being transformative, but I can see your data being pretty pr premature, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't know what the long term holds. Uh, Sam, I see your data as really powerful and provocative, and I can see it being attractive, right. but I can see technology problems, oh, sure. and I can see a lack of development plans, speaking frankly. And this is all BCG Factory. Petros, I see your drug is challenging, which is why it hasn't taken off, but you do have prospective big randomized trials with immune checkpoint inhibitors in BCG-naive setting and some randomized trials in BCG-refractory setting. Do you want to talk about those trials and how they could be transformative? Yeah, and, and just to add a little bit of context quickly, Tom, there was a cohort B on the pembrolizumab trial to yes. papillary disease only, and there was, as you see, uh, you know, in the data, a, a recurrence-free survival, uh, I think it was, I, I remember correctly, 44% of patients yeah. Uh, they were carence-free, you know, about a year out. So it's a meaningful uh, endpoint, I would say. And it, it, we were talking about biomarkers a minute ago with Matt Galski before I came to the States. And we don't have a great biomarker for this program. However, PD-Lone high tumors, they had much longer median DFS compared to PD-Lone low tumors, hypothesis generating. Yeah. And obviously the FDA would like an randomized trial for papillary tumors for registration. That's why there's no registration for papillary Talk only disease. the CREST trial and also the Potomac trial. Exactly. So in the context of that data, there are four ongoing trials right now. Uh, the Keynote 676 trial yep. is compared to the combination of PEMBRO plus BCG versus BCG alone yes. in BCG-exposed patients, phase yes. 3 trial. I think it's promising. We have to see the data in the future. We have three important trials in BCG-naive setting. And that would double down on pembrolizumab, and it's currently essentially its pre-treated label. I think if that so. trial was positive, that would increase the uptake of pembrolizumab because it would be the first time we've got randomized data here. Would I, you agree on that? I agree on that. And I think we we'll have to see what the Keynote 676 will show. Yeah. A little bit different population, a little bit earlier in the disease space. Sure. But definitely will definitely but randomize in a pre population. For sure. What about your two big studies? And, the, and to your point, in the BCG naive setting, there are three important programs. Potomac trial, Durvalma yes. plus BCG yes. versus BCG alone, I think is probably the earliest to report data because it started earlier. We have not seen data yet. 
We'll see when the data comes. The second trial is the CREST trial. It's interesting because it evaluates and subcutaneously administered checkpoint inhibitors, Sasanlimab plus BCG versus BCG alone. There are so three arms in this trial, and one of the third arm is around that maintenance period mm -hmm. because there's BCG and then there's maintenance therapy. I knew you folks know more about this than me. And they've gone through this approach where they've actually said in one of the two study arms, they're not giving the maintenance BCG. So it's BCG maintenance BCG, it's a control arm, BCG duvalumab without the maintenance, then BCG duvalumab with maintenance. Do you think it's really risky dropping that middle arm? How important is maintenance BCG? Or is it just people squirting something in the bladder because we decided to do it? What's the data to support maintenance BCG? There's, there's lots of data, yeah. So from, from uh, the initial SWOG trials showing that maintenance was clearly superior to uh, induction BCG and, and alone, there's not only a decrease in recurrence-free survival, but actually progression. So it's actually the only data to show decrease in progression uh, with uh, non-muscle mesoblatic cancer has been BCG plus maintenance. Otherwise, BCG is just kicking the can down the road uh, with recurrences. So maintenance is important. Unfortunately, we have a shortage, uh, national and some, some global, the shortage of BCG for, for patients. So it's a challenge delivering maintenance right now. But it, I, I think it is important. And maybe it's here to your point, is that maybe the impetus to design that third arm? Absolutely. To evaluate the maintenance in the context of a yeah. shortage. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, now, my next question is that Trial has, has disease-free survival is it, are their primary endpoint. That CR, you know, how long can we maintain that, those, those pro, pro, the lack of progression? What does that mean to a urologist? If, the, if you've got a six-month delay in, in, that, in, in progression, is that meaningful to you folks? If there's a 20% reduction or a 30% reduction in the risk of, of, of disease-free survival, what does, what's a positive frontline immune checkpoint in the trial look like? Yeah, it, it in has, terms of practice change, it, it has to be durability. In, in my view, I think it's durability of, of it's, it's not just uh, it has to be durability of, of response and not progression. I think progression is a whole different story in non-muscular bladder cancer. Once you have a progression event, you have to bring up cystectomy again, no matter what the risks are, because the death rate from subsequent progression to muscle invasive disease is going to be high in those patients. So you're comfortable with a primary endpoint of progression, and that would make you change practice. Yeah. And how much, how much benefit would you be looking for? A 50% delay in progression, a 20% delay in progression, a 10% delay in progression? Certainly not 10 to 20. It would be somewhere in the 20 to 50% range. So it has to be significant. And Sam? Yeah, I, I think... It's going to turn your practice upside down because it means all your patients are going to get your value map. I mean, <laughs> suddenly I, that 10% toxicity and you're yeah. going to be up on ITU with pneumonitis. You know what? So yeah, you, what, what, what benefit? What, talk, talk, I, I, I guess it's, it's, it's two points when it comes to progression-free. It's either... It's the bottom line of, yes, you progressed or you haven't progressed. Even a small person, very few of these patients eventually progress. So a few percentage points, if you've actually affected that, that's important. Now, if you're talking about the duration of that progression-free length of time, then to me, it's got to be six months, 12 months, 18 months. You have to have to have a significant difference because just that little change in that length of time is not as important to me as the bottom line. You've progressed or you haven't progressed. Why don't we use a hard endpoint like cystectomy? Kind oh, of cystectomy. People, people have. People have looked yeah. at the cystectomy free rate. But you, you prefer, it, but you don't love that endpoint. You prefer, you prefer event free survival. I, I, I mean, cystectomy rate, I think, is, is, is a part, part of the answer, part of the description of actually what's going on. 
the soft part of that is there's so many decision points going into that whether a cystectomy is done or not, patient-driven, physician-driven, et cetera. And so I, I think the, the, the bottom line, what Sia says is, if there's progression in this disease, you've suddenly changed something that is, has really not been life-threatening to something that is life-threatening. And so that, that impact, I think, is very, very important. For overall kind of a, a patient's well-being, recurrence is really what affects them um, kind of every day because these cancers tend to recur. They tend not to progress. If they regress, bad news. So yeah, bottom line, you gotta stop that progression. But almost as importantly, you gotta stop the recurrences that affect, oh, I gotta have a scope, I gotta have a TRBT, I've gotta do all those things. I think if you can decrease that, then you've obviously made a big difference. Yeah, one of the interesting endpoints that radiation oncologists are using is this bladder intact event-free survival. I think that's a relevant endpoint here because it's bladder intact and it's event-free survival. It's both recurrence, progression, it's all of it. Uh, yeah. And you're keeping your bladder, right? Uh, so I, I think that that's, we should be thinking more along those lines. Petros, what are the challenges things trials being positive? I have some questions about the statistical design of those three trials. By the way, there is a third trial called ALVAN with right. atezolizumab plus BCG versus right. BCG. All those three trials, I think, you know better the data than me, that the statistical design was based on some older data with BCG that may have underestimated the performance of the you know, control group. So if the BCG does better in modern era, would that risk the trials not become positive? We have to see. Yeah. I think it's likely that some of them to be positive. We have to see, of course, the data. The other question I have you know, uh, here, and I want to comment, obviously you mentioned, Tom, pembrolizumab has not been uptaken, but I think should be discussed with the patients, is an FDA-approved option, and for patients who may have received intravesical options, should be discussed as an FDA-approved option. And some of those patients, a few of them, have durable responses and they can keep the bladder. Mm -hmm. So I think it emphasizes the need for multidisciplinary care, the optimal sequence of those agents need to be defined, but I think it's great to have more options for the patients, and especially those who are not willing to undergo cystectomy or are not fit for it. So it's great to have options for that. Sam, Sid, do you think we've done well from an oncology perspective in, in broadcasting pembrolizumab <coughs> and its effectiveness in this um, BCG refractory? Have the oncologists or have the urologists or have, have, have the we whole medical community? Have we as a community come effective, the FDA has approved something yes. and, and, we, and we haven't adopted it as much. Have we done well in, in education and training? As a uh, I, I think as a rule, there's always a struggle with that, with, with treatment, with guidelines, with everything in terms of integrating it into everyday practice. Yes, we should do better. Um, yes, we should offer more to our patients. Um, have their attempts been made? Yes. If anybody can figure out what the best way is to help broadcast that message and, and disseminate it, please tell all of us because nobody knows in, what it is. We're going to finish in five seconds, but see a BCG refractory disease, current standard of care in your, in your clinic on Ooh. the assumption that you have access to all the FDA approved treatments. <laughs> FDA approved. Uh, yes. Yeah, Pembro included, and manufacturing available. Tough questions always. Uh, so let, let's say yeah, that the results look the same in, in sort of longer term data. I think uh, probably lean towards the TAR 200. So I, assuming I, everything gets FDA approved? I, I would go intravesical over systemic at this point. And you don't mind which so much? At this point, no. Do you think TAR 200s can be transformative and sweep away the tide of all of the other therapies? Remains to be seen. Okay, Petros. 
I think at the current state today, there are two agents approved. One is intravenous pembrolizumab, the other is nodofaragin feradenovac, but I haven't seen it in practice because of manufacturing issues. I know it's available in specific centers, so I think both should be discussed with the patient. And some patients may actually get in sequence more than one therapy. I see a lot of intravesical chemo being used based on retrospective data. I think the future is bright with all those options potentially available. I would need a little bit more follow-up and sample size yeah. on the follow-up on the TAR200 uh, program. I think TAR210 is uh, uh, promising, and I would love to see Tom randomize trials down the road to optimize the sequence in the BCN responsive disease. Fabulous. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank you. Great.